0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Good morning. It's great to be here. And welcome to Livermore and Bankhead Theater. A special shout-out goes to the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory for providing this exciting series for students and parents. This partnership of the lab and educators is a fantastic example of the support that good neighbors uh, give to each other. Today's topic is Order from Chaos, the Birth of the Solar System. Well, I had to go look at what the word chaos meant, and uh, I looked at my daughter's room, and I said, sure, chaos, there it is. must be a planet, solar system, somewhere under that bed in that closet. How many kids have got rooms like that? Yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about. Well, today our two speakers are going to show you that out of your room may come a, a solar system or two. Our presenters today are Dr. John Bradley and Dan Burns. Dr. Bradley was born in New Zealand and came to the U.S. in 1978, obtained a Ph.D. from Arizona State University. Dr. Bradley is the director of the Institute of Geophysics and Planetary Physics at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Is the adjunct professor in the School of Materials and Science and Engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology, and a partner in a scientific consulting firm in Atlanta. Dr. Bradley has spent much of his past 20 years engaged in research funded by NASA on extraterrestrial materials like meteorites and interplanetary particles. He was a scientific advisor to NASA on the Stardust mission that returned to Earth in January 2006 carrying the first sample of collected from the tail of a comet. And he is currently a member of the science team planning a mission to actually land on a comet scoop up several hundred grams of ice and dust, and return them to Earth. The origin of life will be a major focus in the second mission to a comet. The teacher with us today is Dan Burns. He's been teaching Earth and Space Sciences and AP Physics at Los Gatos High School for 12 years. He is the Los Gatos High School Science Department Chair, past president of the Northern California Nevada American Association of Physics Teachers. He has worked on curriculum development and teacher workshops for the SETI Institute, for the USGS, USGS, NASA, AAPT, and the San Jose State University. He has a Bachelor of Science in Aerospace Engineering from the University of Illinois. Prior to becoming a teacher, Dan was a senior research specialist for the Lockheed Missiles and Space Company. Dan is an avid astronomer and an astrophotographer and has had several pictures published in astronomy magazines. So please put your hands together and give them a warm welcome.
2: Well, good morning. good morning. So, we're going to talk today about the, the solar system. So, I have to warn you in advance that when we talk about the solar system, we also have to talk about some very, very large numbers. Um, this is sort of unavoidable, but I think hopefully if you can leave today with a better perception of what these numbers mean for you and the world around you, I think it will, be, it will have been a useful uh, hour spent here. So, to sort of put this into perspective, uh, no talk about the solar system can go forward without looking at goldfish. But there, there, there's two goldfish in a pond. From their point of view, there are only two fish in this universe. Okay? Now, they're not the smartest creatures in the world. We're slightly star- smarter. We know that, in fact, they're on the Earth. And the oceans of the Earth actually contain trillions of fish. It's an enormous number, but as far as the goldfish are concerned, there are only two. Similarly, the goldfish look at their universe or their world, and it's 20 centimetres wide. That's the diameter of the fishbowl. What they don't realise, and what we realise, is the fishbowl is sitting on the earth. The earth is 128 million centimetres across. And that number, 128 million centimetres, is as real as the distance between you and I today. These are real numbers and they define the universe or at least the world in which the fish live. We're not going to talk about the solar system and the galaxy but from those fish's point of view their perception of their world and universe is extremely limited. They think there's one gallon of water in their their universe. In fact, they live on an earth that has 326 million trillion gallons of water. A huge number but a very real number. As it turns out, you know, we too live in a sort of a fishbowl, okay? We, we, we are in a better situation than goldfish, but our perception is sort of parallels their perception of the universe. This is what our fishbowl looks like, the solar system. We live here on the third rock out from the sun, the earth. And by the way, does anyone know uh, what's the outermost planet? Neptune. Neptune, yes. Pluto got kicked off the... Uh, Kicked off the island recently. It's actually a Kuiper Belt object. Okay, let's talk about distances. We've talked about the distances as perceived by the goldfish in their world. Okay. Does anyone know the distance between the moon and the Earth? Yes. 250,000 miles approximately. That's exactly right. It's a big number, but we know it's real. We've actually sent people there and back. That's a big number. I got a slightly bigger number. What's the distance between the Earth and the Sun? Yes. 93 million miles. Okay, so this guy wins a a prize for that. Okay, the prize I brought with me today, you may not have heard of this place, but it's called In N Out Burger. Okay? So you can get a double double with this. And I had one yesterday, they're really good. So we're going to talk about the solar system, how it was formed, and how we got here, and indeed, how we're going to leave the solar system. And This is a long story, and the fact of the matter is, we simply don't have time to do it today. We started with the Big Bang, there's the formation of galaxies and in the interstellar medium, then the formation of molecular clouds, and here this becomes very important to us, because it's in molecular clouds, we get star formation, and the solar system, is one, the sun is one of those stars, and then we lead to life on Earth. So what I'm going to do today is concentrate mostly on those three central ones in yellow, molecular cloud formation, star formation, and the formation of the solar system. But let's start very briefly with the big bang. What do we know about it? Well, it happened about 15 billion years ago, okay? And what really happened was an extremely small, extremely small condensed state exploded. Exploded in a massive explosion. Uh, We don't know a lot about the nature of the the state or what preceded the Big Bang. What we do think we know is that all matter, energy, and space were created in this explosion. Let me show you a quick video of, of what it could have looked like. So what we're doing now is actually going from time equals zero, and we'll end up at time equals 15 billion years. And as the universe began to age and expand, we start to see the evolution of structure. Even after 10 to the minus 13 of a second, there was already structure in the universe. Then we started to get uh, the formation of clumps of material. Then we formed galaxies and then stars. And we're going to see coming out of the middle right at us very shortly is our home, the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, this is our neighborhood. Okay, so we'll take a look at our neighborhood, but before we do, let's look out the window and see who's on the same street. This is our biggest neighbor. It's a galaxy just like ours. Actually, kind of about the same size. It's about 2 million light years away. Okay? Speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. They're huge numbers, but they're actually very real. Once again, as real as the distance between you and I in this auditorium today. Does anyone know the name of this, and this? Andromeda, yes, exactly. Okay, that's our biggest neighbour. Let's have a look at us. This is an actual image of the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy. This is taken by combining data from telescopes in the northern and southern hemisphere. In fact, we're sort of standing back here looking into the galactic centre. By the way, down here is the large and small Magellanic clouds. They were called clouds by the Sailors who first identified them because they looked like smudges in the night. But in fact, it turns out they're galaxies, just like the Milky Way. Does anyone know the uh, signs of our Milky Way galaxy? He's right. He gets a double-double. double double So it's about 100,000 light years across. It's about 1,000 light years in the so-called the bulge, in the centre of the galaxy. The centre of the bulge has a black hole. It's a real wimp by black hole standards. It's only 100 million solar masses. Okay, But nonetheless, we have one. This is where we are, the solar system. We're in a star. We're about 24,000 light years out from the galactic centre okay actually we're actually out here in front looking there in 90 million years that's where we'll be but that's our distance to the center 24,000 light years now we're moving around the galactic center at about 100 kilometers per second okay so when you think about time travel the big problem of course is if you leave where you want to go even if you can travel through time it's not there when you get there so it complicates time travel how many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy? Uh, you said 100 million? 100 billion trillion? Okay, let me. Well, it's a bit, not, not quite as much as that, depending on what 100 billion trillion means, and I can't calculate it right now. <laughs> uh, there's, about more, there's about 200 billion stars. Some people think it's actually as high as 400 billion, recent estimates. That's just in our our galaxy. 200 billion stars. So let's now go and look between the stars in our galaxy. And this is a region called the interstellar medium. And the interstellar medium is a big vacuum, if you like, the space between the stars, but it actually contains stuff. It contains gas and it contains particles, grains. And just like the Earth's atmosphere, also contains dust and gas. But by comparison, the interstellar medium is about a million times cleaner than the Earth's atmosphere.
0: John, I uh, brought in some molecules that can be found in the interstellar medium and in some common household things. Uh, Ammonia is found in between the stars, and that's also in fertilizer. Uh, Acetic acid molecules are found in space, and uh, just like you'd find in vinegar and also the glass the bottle's made out of, uh, found between the stars and silica. Uh, naphthalene, which is a common ingredient in mothballs, found between the stars. Sodium chloride or table salt. Uh, acetone, which is in some nail polish remover. Even ethyl alcohol, uh, which is in tequila. And iron, which uh, you find in nails and screws. Uh, carbonate material, which is also chalk, Uh, the ethylene in the plastic uh, of this bottle found between the stars in the interstellar medium, as well as water ice. Uh, Something you might not expect if your charcoal grill hasn't been scraped clean in a while. The black gunk on the charcoal grill is also a molecule called PAH which is found between the stars.
2: Sort of like a charcoal material, I believe. Yeah. So I have a quick, oh, I'm I ready. So as I said, there's gas and dust in the interstellar medium. There's only two major kinds of dust grain. Does anyone know what they are? This is a tough question. No? OK. Let's, let's. the most, two most abundant kinds of dust grain in the interstellar medium are is actually glass, just like the glass in glass bottles. And also charcoal-like material, uh, gunky, tarry kind of material. By the way, his grill is much cleaner than mine. Um, so these are the two kinds of particulate material in interstellar medium. So in a sense, the solar system was actually made out of glass and charcoal. So oh, let me back up one more. As I said, the, there's dust and gas in interstellar medium at a very low concentration. But there are parts in the interstellar medium where the dust and gas gets together into these clouds. Called interstellar molecular clouds, and this is where the story becomes relevant to us. These clouds basically is where the dust and gas accumulates and begins to clump. And there are several types of types of clouds. There are giant clouds which are tens of light years across. There's small cloud clouds. There's dense, very dark clouds, and then there's diffuse clouds that look like clouds in, above the city, San Francisco, with you know the the clouds diffuse. They get denser and they diffuse away. And although these clouds are enormous in the interstellar medium, they only have about less than 1% of the total mass of the material in the interstellar medium. And they contain, as I said, glass and uh, dust grains of charcoal-like material and glass. They also contain a lot of ices in some clouds and all sorts of molecules, as, as Dan just discussed. But most importantly, these clouds are the birthplace of the stars. I just want to show you two interesting clouds that you may have seen before. The one on the right is the so called pillars of creation. This is an enormous, these are enormous clouds, many, many parsecs across. This is material that's been ablated off by nearby stellar winds, taking material off the top of the cloud. It's a bit like if you ever go skiing or you're at sea and the wind is so strong, it blows the tops off the waves. Or if you're up in the mountains on the Himalayas, you see these huge winds blowing the ice off the mountain. That's sort of what's happening here with with stellar winds. This here is a a so-called dark cloud. It's actually a little, it's a small cloud. It's only about a half a light year across. It's extremely dense, so dense that even starlight can't get through it. But this is the sort of place where stars are born. What's interesting about these dark clouds, they're actually the coldest places in the universe. Temperatures go down in the the centres of these dark clouds to about 10 degrees above absolute zero. Everything stops. All motion, all chemical reactions stop at those kind of temperatures. Just to put this into perspective, does anyone know the lowest temperature ever recorded on Earth? Negative 100 and how many degrees? Negative 80, well let's have it in Fahrenheit, or Kelvin, or whatever, negative 80 degrees C. Let's have a look. Do you want to have a try again? There's a double-double burger hanging on us? You got it. (laughs) Yeah. Oops. Negative 129 degrees. Okay. So this is about ten times colder than the coldest place on Earth. Now to get to start a form in a dark cloud like that, we have something has to happen. The cloud actually has to collapse. Somehow collapse. Sometimes this happens just by gravitation; it just begins to collapse on in itself, and other times it's triggered by some sort of external event. And the reason I mention this is we believe an external event triggered the collapse of the cloud that formed the solar system. And the usual suspect in these cloud collapses are these supernovae. Does anyone know what a supernova is? This is not a double-double burger question, uh, but. but uh, Yes. right, right so many stars end their life by basically becoming unstable and exploding and these explosions are doozies okay? they explode there's a massive explosion it sends out a bow shock a shock wave for hundreds of millions of miles in space and the shock wave when it hits a molecular cloud like our parent molecular cloud you get something like this so the bright spot is a supernova about to go off and imagine this red cloud as the parent molecular cloud of our solar system. You'll see the shockwave come out, hits the cloud, and what starts to happen? You collapse region, dense regions of the cloud and start to get star formation. And our solar system probably got started this way, and it probably got started in a whole clump of nearby stars. It didn't happen on its own. The reason we suspect a supernova was involved is if we look at meteorites, these are rocks that come from the asteroid belt, and these are actually these are rocks that formed at the beginning of the solar system, and not a lot has happened to them. So in fact, they preserve a record. They're like a forensic, they're like a dead body. And you want to find out how the, how the body, who killed the, the person, you go and look at the evidence. And this is the evidence of what happened in the solar system. And what we find in here are some really strange isotopes called aluminum-26 and iron 60 This is very important because aluminum 26 and iron 60 are produced in supernova blasts so what we're saying is meteorites contain evidence that a supernova blast went through the solar system that makes us believe that our solar system was actually triggered by an explosion of a very close supernova so now that the star has collapsed and it starts to get bright what happens okay on the left-hand side this is what begins to happen in the beginning. The, the dust and gas starts to collapse downwards. It starts to preserve angular momentum. It starts to rotate. Okay, it collapse, spirals in. And then in the middle, you get the formation of this hot, dense region, which is what we call a protostar. And then you have this disk of debris, gases and dust. Like, this is almost like a fetus of a star, the very first embryo of the star. And at some point, to dissipate energy from this rotating disk, we get these jets of gas and a little bit of dust and ions travel go out vertically for each side and they travel millions of miles into space, hundreds of millions of miles. And these are called bipolar jets. So these are the two early stages. We now believe that without these jets forming, you can't get planets to form later on in the disk. So these, we believe, are critical stages in the formation of a star. Now, I'm going to show you an animation there. And this is actually... It's, it's a video animation, but it's actually taken from a whole series of images from the Orion Nebula, from a particular star-forming region. And the video reconstruction is an exact reconstruction of the positions of the star in that nebula and what they look like and their stages of formation. And what you're going to see is these things here, we call them proplids. And although this picture shows a nice disk, what really happens is, if there's a nearby star, all the gas gets blown off the disk and it gets elongated. And You'll see that, and then you'll see bipolar outflows, and then you'll see Planet forming. So this is taken from a series of Hubble images of this star-forming region. We're coming up into the stellar nursery here. There's some bright stars, and all the little ones are proplids. And see that those halos of ultraviolet light from the nearby star hitting, hitting the bow of the proplid. Here's a proplid. See, its winds are blowing It's the gas off its disc. You can't see the disc. Here's another one. The winds are blowing... Now, this is called HS10. This is a pro we know a lot about. Here's the gas being blown off by stellar winds, and as the gas goes away, we start to see bipolar jets coming out, and astronomers can actually see planets starting to form on that disk of HS10. So I'll run that once more. That's the critical sequence of events. Well, let's see if we can do that once more. That's the critical sequence of events going from the gas cloud to the proto proplid to the formation of the evolution of these bipolar outflows, and then finally we get the disk. That's where the planets are going to form. These are propylids, baby stars. This is a more evolved star. It's blowing. The winds are blowing on the disk there. Here's ATS-10, propylid. the, the, The gases are being blown away, but inside... There are bipolar outflows, and there's a disk with planets forming in it. That's how it happens. They the, that's the basic ingredients of a star formation. Now, then we get to the disk. We'll take a closer look at the disk. And I'm going to run this video of how planets form the disk, and then Dan's going to give you a demonstration. So basically, all that happens is that you've got all this dust in this disk going round and round, and eventually grains bang into get to, to one another. They stick together. They coagulate. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Pebbles go to rocks, rocks go to boulders, boulders go to darn big boulders, then the planetismals, and then onto planets. That's essentially what happens. And what you end up with is a series of planets. Dan, do you want to show a demonstration or have So
0: We can have an analogy with this. There are pressure waves that go through the uh, protoplanetary disk that cause the material to clump and form planets. And so I have some material here and a pressure wave can also be sound waves and it can cause the material to clump I don't think we'll get any planets here but this is what happened uh, in the early solar system and formed the planet that we're now on earth as well as our other ones
2: So it's a bit of an ignoble start to know that our planet just got started by dust grains banging into each other but essentially that's A key element in this process. Okay, so let's move on to an even more question how did we get here? Okay, and this is a bunch of uh, scientists. We were up at Mount Rainier. How did we get mountains, snow, plants, human beings? Okay? When you look at this and you know there's robust life on Earth, the obvious question is is there something special about the Earth and our solar system? that favoured life on, Earth, on this solar system rather than other solar systems? And if you look, well, the answer may be yes. First of all, the Earth is in an ideal location in the solar system. This is the southern California of the solar system. And what I mean by that is we're close enough to the sun to have warmth. We can have reactions, with UV, sunlight, things like that. It's nice and close. OK, that's the first thing. The second thing... And if we went out, further, if the Earth was out further, it'd be too cold for life. The second uh, advantage we've got, we've got some heavy protection in the form of the giant planets. Does anyone know uh, what this protection is against? Yes.: Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, OK, good. Uh, in fact, it does. Jupiter and Saturn do two things. The outer solar system is a region rich in comets. If comets get too close to Jupiter, their orbits get perturbed and they come in close to the Earth. So the, what's nice about these two giant planets, these comets have to get past them before they can get to the Earth. So that shields the inner solar system from bombardment by comets. And this is important because the Earth has been hit multiple times by comets it catches a lot of them, it doesn't catch them all. Okay. The other thing the giant planets do is they stabilise the asteroid belt. And, and the asteroid belt is this ring of rocks ranging from pebbles all the way up to objects 1,000 kilometres in, in diameter. And in some ways, you can consider the asteroid belt as one of the solar system's great failures. It didn't quite get its act together to accrete another planet. So what we're left with is basically a failed planet here and it's revolving around the sun. Now, the problem is this isn't as stable as we'd like it to be. We get hit by meteorites daily, and sometimes some very large meteorites, for example, large enough to cause the extinction of the dinosaurs. But without, without Jupiter close by, which gravitationally stabilizes the asteroid belt, we would literally be in a shooting gallery. We simply would never have survived to this point. We would have been hit so many times. So in a sense, the solar system is very special, at least in terms of supporting life, like we as we know it on the Earth. One final property of the solar system that's very important for life is the moon. We have an unusually large moon orbiting the Earth. Does anyone know why that would help life? This is definitely a double double question. Uh, I think you, yeah. Okay, so so, I think your answer was the moon influences the tides, right. Actually, that's, that is actually true. It's not the answer I was looking for, but yes. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Okay, so that's a good answer too. Um, he said it'll block us being hit by comets, I think, right? And it will, but it's not big enough it, it, unfortunately it will do that but only a limited number because of its small size Okay, yes He got a double-double <laughs> um, the, His answer was that the, the large moon stabilizes the earth on its current axis and he's absolutely right The large moon has kept the tilt axis of the Earth stable to within plus or minus one degree for billions of years. Now, contrast this with Mars, which has very small moons. It's wobbled over plus or minus 90 degrees. The problem with that is that the tropics turn into ice ages and back into tropics over and over again. So, in other words, the climate is so unstable on a wobbly planet that life cannot sustain itself. So the large moon has stabilised the climate on Earth such that life can evolve. Okay, very briefly. Don't worry about this diagram up here. Let me tell you what we know about how life got started. The early uh, uh, Earth, about 4 to 4.5 billion years ago, was actually a nasty place. We had no oceans. We had a molten magma ocean. Molten rock was the ocean. No stable surface. And at the same time, we were being bombarded constantly by comets and asteroids, because the solar system hadn't quite yet settled down. So, not a good place for life. At about 3.5 billion years ago, actually about 4 billion years, we got evidence of the first rocks. So we know that then the magma oceans had cooled and we had continents floating on these oceans. Very soon after that, once there was a stable crust, we find the oldest rocks on Earth, and guess what? They contain evidence of life, actual life. These are primitive life forms, these so-called... Stromatolites that you find in, in the Northern Territory in Australia. But we know life got started almost immediately that the Earth settled down and became stable, life got started. Now, we suspect that life got started very early, but it probably got, became extinct over and over again until it finally got a foothold. So whatever the process was that started life on the Earth, we know it was very robust and very persistent. By about 1,000 million years... Uh, the Earth had oceans, saltwater oceans, probably a lot saltier than they are today. It had stable continents, but more importantly, it had an atmosphere with a high oxygen content. And we believe the oxygen content of the atmosphere was what caused a veritable explosion of life on Earth. It just literally took off. So that's the scenario from which we went from our very hostile Earth. As soon as we had stable rocks, life got started and then exploded when we got an atmosphere. So we know how we began we know about the origin of life on earth what's going to happen well we actually know the answer to that too we know what kind of star the sun is and we know what happens to stars like the sun eventually they become red giants so the sun is eventually going to to begin to expand and it's going to keep on expanding it'll first consume mercury then it will consume venus and then it will consume the earth it will expand all the way up to jupiter okay so that's I'm afraid that's the end of us. The good news is it's not going to happen for another 7.5 billion years. So, <laughs> so we have a lot of problems to solve in the meantime. So we know that our Earth star is going to the solar system is going to be consumed. It's going to go away in 7.5 billion years. So the question then becomes, what's going to happen after us? Are there life forms around other stars? And of course, this is probably the most Interesting question in space sciences, and what we have to do is to figure out what what would you well. First of all, we have to look at other stars and see if we can detect evidence of light. And Dan's going to show you an, a demonstration of some of the problems we've got of how, when we try to look for planets or life around other stars.
0: We've found over 300 planets orbiting other stars, or sometimes they're called exoplanets. But those are by indirect methods, either watching the star wobble because of the planets going around it, or looking for a dip in the star's brightness as a planet goes in front of it. But just recently, astronomers achieved the the holy grail of exoplanet uh, astronomy, and that is they took pictures of planets going around other stars. The problem is, stars are really bright. Planets only reflect the star's light, and so they're very dim. And so what they did is they figured out a way to block the star's light. And that reveals the little planets here. Uh, or they used some uh, more advanced techniques to cancel the light of the star out. And so John's group at uh, the lab was one of the groups that imaged three planets around another star. And he's going to tell you about that.
2: So uh, let me show you the star. This is some work that was done by some colleagues of mine at Livermore and elsewhere, the University of California, and also in Europe. They looked at a star, a pretty unremarkable star, called HR 8799 in Pegasus. There it is, indicated by the arrow. Nothing special about that star. It's a young star like the, like the uh, sun. When they used some of these special blocking optics and image processing, well, hang on, let me back up. Let me back up, I'm sorry. Let me ask this question first. When we look at life on Earth, do we know what we need to host life around another star? What, 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 what do you think would have to be associated with that star for there to be life evolving? Yes. Excuse me? Water is, if water is critical for life as we know it. But step back one step further from what's in that environment, what kind of environment, what object would we need? What about this young lady over here? Oxygen, yes. yes. Oxygen is critical for life as we know it. Yes. Excuse me? Light, Light yes. But step back. These are, the, these are the properties of the object where there would be life. Yes. Atmosphere, yes. Maybe I've asked the question not in the correct way. What I'm looking for, what we need is something very basic. We need a stable planet or moon. That's the first thing. You could never have life on Jupiter because it's just a gas giant. What we need is a stable substrate like a moon or a planet for life to get started. Anyhow, back to where I was going with this. This is the sun-remarkable star, HR 8799. This is what, this is what it looks like when the light from the star is blocked out. Colleagues of mine at Livermore and elsewhere found three stars, three planets around this star orbiting the planet, or orbiting the star. If you compare this with the Earth actually kind of interesting. The scale is bigger in this star, but more importantly these are all giant planets. These are not rocky planets like the Earth or Mars so the possibility of life on these planets is minuscule. However, where you find giant planets, gas giants you'll probably find rocky planets. The problem is we can't see them yet. We're probably a few years away from seeing smaller rocky planets directly. But this is absolute proof that there are planetary systems around other stars. So we now know that elsewhere in the galaxy, the basic ingredient necessary for life in the galaxy or the universe is around lots of other stars. So let's think about this. 300 planets, as Dan said, four have been directly imaged so far. And you know, 20 years ago, this was unthinkable. When I started out in school, we never dreamed we'd ever see a planet around another star. That's just 20 years ago. So, now that we've got planets, what about life? And I want to show you some footage uh, associated with the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble was launched in about 1990. It's arguably the most important scientific instrument ever built by man. And in terms of what we've learned about ourselves and the universe we live in, that's absolutely true. And let me show you what the Hubble folks have to say about the question of life. And uh, this is made by the European Space Agency.
3: We live on a planet, one of eight in our solar system. We'll miss you, Pluto. These planets orbit a rather unremarkable star. Our star is in a galaxy, one of 500,000 million in the Milky Way. I know big numbers again, but bear with me. This is the pinwheel galaxy in the constellation Ursa Major, a galaxy much like our own. This is the largest and most detailed image of a spiral galaxy ever taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Every one of these points of light is a star. Every single one. Some are bigger and some are smaller than our sun, but they're all stars. Many of them have planets orbiting around them. Looking at this image, the idea that the Earth may be the only planet in the entire universe that harbors life appears almost absurd. It seems much more likely that there are many more planets like ours. Our galaxy is just one of many in our local group. And there are many, many galaxies. When we look up at the sky, we can see only about 3,000 stars on a clear, dark night from that, it's easy to think that that's all there is. The universe almost doesn't seem quite so big. Now we know better. The Hubble Deep Field is one of the few examples that help us get our heads around just how big our universe is. The story's not over though. Later, in September 2003, the Hubble did it again. This time, it looked at another unremarkable section of sky and stared at it again for a little over eleven days. They used improved detectors with different filters, and this time, they saw this. This is called the Ultra Deep Field. It represents the farthest we've ever seen into the universe over 10,000 galaxies are in this picture every single dot smudge and smear is an entire galaxy and each one of these dots has millions and millions of stars each star has the possibility of planets orbiting it each one with the possibility of a civilization this is what we see when we stare at a blank spot in the sky where nothing appears to be this is the number of galaxies in nothing This is a picture of 78 billion light-years. It's a picture of how small we are. It is the single most important image ever taken by humanity.
2: Makes you think, doesn't it? So... I know what I think about life elsewhere in the galaxy. I won't ask you, but it's worth thinking about. The future. Let's finish with that. I think, you know, despite all the economic new, bad news we hear these days, the future is very, very very good, especially in science. And I suspect this gentleman here in this picture is going to play a major role in the future of science. At least I'm, I sh- I'm sure most of you agree we are hoping this happens. Uh, I have a quote from his inaugural speech, which I think... Certainly, those of us in science took notice of. We will restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders. That is going to affect you young folk more than it's going to affect me in a very positive way. And looking at the future, I want to finish by showing you something I'm associated with now. This is a mission that's being drawn up now, and I'm leading the science team on this. And we're going to fly, we're hoping to fly to another comet this mission's going to cost about seven or $800 million. And we're going to go to the comet this time, and rather than fly through the tail, we're actually going to land on the nucleus itself, and we've got a dustbuster kind of device. We're going to scoop up about 500 grams of ice and dust in a can. We're going to put it in a refrigerator, and we're going to bring it back to Earth. And when we get it back on Earth, we're going to analyze it with the most sophisticated instruments on the planet. And a major focus of those analyses is to see if we can detect organic molecules that may have been responsible for the origin of life on Earth. We want to do this because we know the early Earth at about the time life was getting started was being bombarded with comets. We know they brought a lot of water to the Earth and they may well have bought the critical organic molecules, the abiotic molecules that went on to form life. Now the, that's the good side. The bad side for me is this mission is going to take 30 years. So I'm probably not going to be, well, I hope I'm around, but I'll probably be doddery and not very good at science anymore. But the fact is, it's quite conceivable that one or more people in this room could end up on the science team of this mission. And finally, I want to finish where we started, back with our goldfish, and I'll leave it there.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.